Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast, which is brought to you today by our main partners, Kaiser. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I hope you're well wherever you happen to be listening to this today. Today, my guest is Gareth Bloomfield, a psychologist working for the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst. Some of you Leaders regulars may recall that Gareth spoke on stage at our Sports Performance Summit at London's Twickenham Stadium in 2019. There's been plenty of water under the bridge since then, and so we were keen to invite Gareth into the new Leader Studio to discuss the matter of changing people's behaviours, which we know to be a common preoccupation of the coaches amongst you. Gareth is able to provide the chartered psychologist's view. Also on the agenda are the recent advances in neuroscience research and the simple but important question, why are people resistant to change? Gareth is far better placed than me to delve into this, so I wanted to get right into the conversation. But first, I wanted to mark your card with a couple of forthcoming virtual roundtables. On April the 12th, we'll be hosting Developing Oneself, How and What. Then two days later, we have the next instalment of our performance support series. Finally, on the 28th of April, we have our next member case study, hosted by Leaders Performance Advisor, Rachel Vickery. She will lead a session looking at communication in high-pressure environments, one not to be missed. Also, keep an eye out for Rachel's input across the Performance Hub throughout the year too. Exciting stuff, there's no doubt about it. And remember, if you're a member as part of a team membership, you can attend all of our events, virtual or otherwise. And if you'd like to attend and you are not a member yet, please inquire about joining at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Now, back to Gareth, who set the scene with a personal introduction. So my name's Gareth Bloomfield. I'm a chartered psychologist at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. And I work with behavioral science, and that also includes psychological resilience as well, and also how we make decisions and how we get people to change behaviors. Well, let's get straight into it while we're here today. Just how difficult is it to change people's behavior? Okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. It is exceptionally difficult to change behavior. You've only got to think about it just in terms of uh, our own addiction to to things that are around us every day. I mean, most of us are addicted to our phones. You think about somebody using their phone, checking their phone regularly for messages, for things that may be on a news app, for things that come through on Instagram, WhatsApp, whatever it might be. It's almost like we're pre-programmed to do that now. It, there's something driving us. And you take away people's phones and it's almost like they've, they've lost a limb. It's, uh, it's something about what they're not able to do. But how do we give somebody a phone and then say, well, okay, you're, but you're not allowed to, to do this. You, you shouldn't be doing it. You should be doing something a different way. But unless we're standing over them and saying, you know, you, you can't use it, people are going to because there's a neurological driver behind it. There's an increase in hormones. There's an increase in neurotransmitters. Every time we pick up our phone, even before we actually turn it on, there's a little peak of dopamine, a dopamine peak that will reinforce us picking up our phone next time so it's not actually what's on our phone it's the anticipation that there might be something you know from a friend or you know a a funny message on whatsapp or something interesting on the news or even when we turn it on and we find that there isn't or there is that doesn't really matter it's the anticipation of doing things then you gotta think about things like biscuits how many biscuits have you had this week i try now not put them in the house at all but if they were around i would be there would be a big part of my brain that would be flashing up and and actually promoting me to 
to take hold of that biscuit and just put it in my mouth because it's it's easy. It's an, an immediate feedback that the brain is looking for. So I'm a I'm a neuropsychologist. I look at how the brain works and and how those hormones and neurotransmitters are actually pushing us to what we do. And when you understand how the brain works, you understand actually that changing people's behavior is often really very difficult. Changing habits of how we eat, getting people to stop smoking, getting people to stop drinking, taking drugs, all the things that have become addictive within our lives, like I say, mobile phones, those are perhaps the difficult things. But I guess we're talking from a leadership point of view. A leader comes in and tries to change things, but what they're trying to change is they're trying to change people's behavior. And if they think that they're going to achieve that quickly, then then I'd say that was a that's a naive, too optimistic uh, approach, perhaps. So how is behavioral science helping leaders? How does it help them and sports teams, perhaps, to understand behavioral change? The advances in neuroscience research uh, are happening all the time. What we know today might actually change uh, next week from some research outcomes. But the technology that we've got now, particularly with regards to fMRI, which is a magnetic resonance imaging, that's the big magnets that you roll into. There's no metal around them because they're huge magnets, so you're just in there and the F bit is the functional bit. So you can spin a magnet around uh, your head and basically we can start to see a cross-sectional image of your brain and then the functional bit is actually seeing where activity is happening within the brain and that's basically a monitoring of blood flow which then is oxygen flow which is then related to electrical activity within the brain very very small amounts of electrical activity so the best things that we've got perhaps are fMRI but also we've got EEGs the EEGs are the the caps with loads of wires that you put on your head and those can be very accurate about what's happening within the brain and, and when it's happening and what it's being stimulated by so we've got that happening within neuroscience and as we get the information out about how the brain is working we can start to actually layer it upon what we already know about human behavior so What I find fascinating is different parts of the brain that are effectively lighting up, that's the expression I'll use, at different times. So what we used to believe is that you could make rational decisions about what it is that you were going to do. But in actual fact, what what we can see now on functional MRI scanners is that you can see somebody making a decision before they're consciously aware of making a decision. Somebody chooses A or B in a click on left or right hand, but actually we can pick up that the brain has already made a decision before the individual chooses A or B. So your brain is actually working far quicker unconsciously than you are consciously. You think you're making a decision that is based on rational judgment, but actually we can see your brain's already made the decision. So does that make people resistant to change? Yes, it can do, because there are all sorts of things that influence my behavior and what it is that I'm doing. I'd refer to it like a cake. So. Um, the influences on me and my behavior. There's long-term influences on here, which of course is my DNA. That's part of that cake. There's also the relationship that I've had with my parents. If you're lucky enough to have parents, it's, you know, your, your relationship with particularly your mother. You know, those are, those are really important relationships. 
relationships with influencing adults throughout your life and then your influences at school and what people tell you you're good at and what you're not good at and then how you've reacted to stress and conflict throughout your life. All those experiences that we've had throughout life are then influencing us and how we're thinking and what our brain has already then pre-programmed to do. So coming in as a leader to an organisation, whether it's a sports team or to uh, to uh, a commercial organisation or even the military, and expecting people to do something differently for you, well, you've got to have in mind all the influences that are pushing upon individuals in terms of their behaviour. Those can be, you know, in this cake, there's a huge amounts of ingredients, huge amounts of ingredients, including whether I like or trust and respect you as a leader. And if you haven't got any of those, then that's going to that's gonna have a major pitfall for your, your influence on me as well, in terms of what you want me to do and what, how you want me to do it differently. So huge amounts of different ingredients in the cake. Not all of it, of course, is resistant. So I'm, I'm, perhaps, I'm giving a, perhaps a pessimistic picture. What I'm saying is, the key message is, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to instigate change. Don't be over-optimistic that change will happen quickly. It's a long-term game, but there are, there are sort of tools and techniques that you can use within that game, if you like. And what are some of those tools and techniques that coaches may benefit from using? Coaches, managers within sport, within the military, within commercial organisations, the techniques are pretty much the same, really, I suppose. There's been a big move on in, in psychology on what we call behavioural insights. And behavioural insights are our ability to look at the behaviours of people and think, well, wh- why people perhaps might be resistant to change? What are the things that make it easier for them to actually change and to adapt and perhaps what are the things that we can do as leaders to try and affect this and to make this happen the first thing you've got to do you've got to identify the problem that you've got now identifying the problem itself is not always easy because you might just decide that you you come in as a as a team manager a team boss and say right i need cultural change here well okay what does cultural change mean but what actually bits of the culture do you need to change you need to be quite specific about what it is that you need to change honing in on the the sorts of things that you need to change or you want to change your desire as a leader that's the first thing you've got to clarify because so many leaders come in with such a broad goal and they haven't really narrowed it down to what it is they actually need to change. It's like the difference between uh, saying you want to lose weight and and actually I've got to stop eating biscuits. Lose weight is the overall goal. Yeah, but how, how do I how do I actually how do we actually lose weight? Well, actually I've got to change my behaviour. And one of the things I've got to change my behaviour is is about perhaps eating biscuits. It's that then I narrow it down to what other behaviours that help me stop eating biscuits. That's the way to look at it. It's about narrowing it down from a broader goal into a very specific goal. So once you've identified your goal and been quite specific about what it is you want to change, then you've got to identify your key players. So what I mean by key players is the, the stakeholders, the influencers, the target population. So you've got a, you've got a group of individuals who are underneath you in your pyramid of how the organization works. So if you're, a, if you're a football manager, then you've got all your support staff. Each one of those is, is somebody who might have an effect upon this change. You've 
also got every one of your team players, and they're all individuals as well. So you could have a actually quite a long list of of key players that actually can influence whether you achieve this goal or not. And once you've identified who the key players are, I guess what you need to do is then identify the actions that each of them need to do to actually assist in achieving the goal. So you've got the actions in terms of their behaviours, the habits that are currently undergoing within the team. So getting down into those, drilling down into the behaviours that people need to do to support your overall objective, those are crucial. So that's just step one. Step one, identify the goal very specifically, identify the key stakeholders, all of them, then identify the behaviours that each of those stakeholders need to display. So the captain of a team probably needs to display what we call perhaps champion behaviour, sort of you, they become the champion, they become, they become the role model, they become somebody who must be showing everyone else that this is the way that we do things. And I suppose you can remember back to England rugby when they won the World Cup. One of the things was about a cultural change within the organisation. I remember someone, a story coming that somebody was persistently turning up late for training. Well, they were out because the captain said they're out. The captain says they're out because actually you're not you're not displaying the values and standards, the behaviours that we need to actually display within this team. So everyone's got a role to play. Everyone's got a behaviour that they can help with to change the, the overall goal. And that's part of the process of what we call targeting the behaviours. You may have heard of the Behavioural Insights team called BIT, which was part of the Cabinet Office. They were looking at policies... Uh, UK policies and about how could we use behavioural science to help the government achieve policies? What are the nudges that we could use to actually nudge human beings into people in the population to actually follow policy? That could be putting people's tax return in on time, etc. So we've pulled in, in the military, we've pulled in a lot of those lessons from the behavioural insights work and a lot of behavioural science together and we're giving people these tools and techniques and that's That's just the first one. The first one is about targeting behaviour, finding your stakeholders, then actually trying to identify what the the behaviours are that each one needs to display. So that's not not a short process. That's going to take you and your team as a leader. It's going to take you and your leadership team some time to identify. And don't leave yourself out either because you're a stakeholder. You're someone who needs to reinforce and change and show all of these values and standards all the things that you want everyone else to do you've got to be doing them as well back to the conversation in a moment but first a word about our main partners kaiser for over 40 years kaiser has been at the cutting edge of the fitness industry kaiser strength products utilize pneumatic technology and dynamic variable resistance which allows the user to build strength at any speed and it offers an unrivaled opportunity to work towards any training goal Kaiser's cardio products are smooth, silent, compact, and designed with the user in mind. Built with Bluetooth integrated technology, the simplistic yet striking design offers unmatched user longevity. Simply put, Kaiser equipment raises the bar in elevating human performance for everyone. If you'd like to hear more, then please get in touch with a member of the leader's team, who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, visit kaiser.com to find out more. And now, Back to the conversation.
One of the things that you see on a regular basis is that you see leadership teams failing to drive behavioural change because they don't do it themselves. They've told everyone else to do it, but they don't actually do it themselves. So if you're adamant that something needs to change, well, it's got to be driven top down and bottom up, which is then, like I say, how I've described that process about targeting behaviour and targeting people. But that's just the first step. So step two then is about trying to identify what may be the the barriers to change so there's a there's a process that we call or the behavioral insights team have called combi c-o-m-b and that's about capability opportunity and motivation uh, and the b is behavior so do the individuals have the capability to be able to change as the support they need with regards to capability do they have the opportunity is there something that might be stopping them or do they have sufficient opportunity to show how the change takes place and are they motivated to do it the other way to think about that one of the models that we promote within the military is is a skill will matrix so you look at people's ability in terms of their skill their that's their capability and the will is the motivation so if people have enough skill enough capability and they're motivated to do it then this seems to be the the perfect recipe to actually facilitate change but there are all sorts of things that get in the way of of people's motivation so i've got a list with me actually about um all the things that might get in the way so Motivation. Do you believe you can do it? Do you believe it's going to be useful? Most people, when they're given new direction about what it is they need to do, most people will say, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that sounds easy. I can do that. But do they fundamentally believe that it's going to be useful to the team? If they don't understand what the leader's vision is, what the leadership team are trying to get to, then, then maybe there's a gap there in terms of my motivation because I don't really understand why it's going to be useful. Do I fully appreciate the consequences of doing it and not doing it? And this, this becomes an important part of motivation, which is that most of the time, if I'm going, doing, going about a behavior that is counterproductive, I'm not really necessarily that aware of it because the counterproductive elements of it are long-term. Go back to that eating analogy that I was talking about. You know, if you put a biscuit in your mouth, you're not really thinking about the long-term consequences of eating a biscuit. The same with putting a cigarette in your mouth or having another drink. People aren't thinking about longer-term consequences and people generally don't until they, they get hit them straight in the face. So an example might be, if I, if I ask everyone listening to this, have they ever used their mobile phone whilst they've been driving? And I suspect the majority of people listening to this would say, yeah. Uh, you know, some people would say, oh, yeah, I've made calls. Okay, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, have you have you checked a message? Have you looked at your screen and taken your eyes off the road to look at your screen, to look at a message, even send a message? And again, the statistics would show that actually most people listening to this have done that at some point. So if that becomes a habit, if that becomes something that you just generally do, you're driving along the motorway and you check a message or you send a message, uh, that's an easy behavior to get into. The consequences of doing it aren't really, they're not really obvious to you until you hit the back of a bus. You find yourself buried in the back of a lorry and your airbags have gone off and then the consequences hit you. Those consequences, if it's been that much of a shock, probably lead you to putting your mobile phone in the glove compartment every time then you get in the car after that and you think, I'm never going to do that again. Unfortunately, the consequences are often far more serious than that. But the 
person doesn't stop eating biscuits until perhaps they have a mild heart attack and find themselves in hospital and then the consultant says oh you know you you like your biscuits do you and yeah yeah i like my biscuits the consultant says no you don't no no i do like my biscuits the consultant says no you don't if you want to live you don't like your biscuits and that's that then becomes the behavioral change so there's got to be a motivator in some way in terms of people actually wanting to change and if they get the consequences actually driven home to them about if we continue to do this, particularly within sports, if we continue to do this, this means you don't get what you want in the longer term. You don't get further up the, the league table. You don't become the most successful player. You don't, we don't, as a team, actually get the, the results that we need on a weekly, monthly basis to actually drive investment up in us you know and you then that that obviously then relates to commercial world just as much as uh, as military we have to ensure that we get the results that we need to get and people reach the standards but do they understand the consequences of not doing it there's accountability the social motivational aspects of it am i am i really accountable for my actions is someone going to pull me up when i don't do it is someone going to give me feedback when i do do it who am i letting down and then can we get this to a point where motivationally it does become a habit it becomes automatic becomes a, a process that people just do i guess in terms of motivation the motivational aspects of wanting to change one of the ways that we can think about it with the evidence of neuropsychology on top of this it's a bit like um, an elephant and a rider the elephant is that's your limbic system it's your hippocampus it's the it's the main elements of the the central parts of your brain the oldest parts of your brain so from an evolutionary perspective this hippocampus and, and limbic system are the things that are there to program what we do to create survival instincts to just help us live as a species then there's the front part of your brain which is the the prefrontal cortex and there's part of your prefrontal cortex which allows you to think ahead that's really the bit that makes you human it's the only bit that really deciphers us from or puts us apart from any other species is this front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. This prefrontal cortex allows you to think ahead. It allows you to think ahead in, in milliseconds. So you're already finishing my, and I don't have to say very, because you'll just fill in the, that's not a sound issue going on here. That is just me leaving out the words and you're finishing my sentences. So you can you can think ahead in seconds, you can think ahead in in hours, days, weeks, years. Someone who's motivated to be a champion tennis player, that motivation starts very young, seeing the longer term benefits of of actually getting to where they want to be. So that ability for us to think ahead, that bit that makes us human, that that sets us apart from any other species but the the interesting thing there is that we think we think we can think ahead and think about the risks and the consequences and then make rational decisions that's the rider that's the rider on top of the elephant but in reality it's the elephant that makes the the decisions so for someone a leader coming into a team and trying to make the team change their behavior in some way well 
think of it like, well, I can convince all of the riders. I can convince all of the riders that change needs to happen. But it's the elephants who control whether change will actually happen. So I can rationally, I'll go back to the biscuit scenario, I can rationally say to my to my my elephant, my limbic system, hippocampus, I can say, uh, walk past the biscuits, Gareth, walk past the biscuit. You don't need a biscuit. You're 50 years old, you're overweight, you're probably close to diabetes, you're not going to, this is not going to end up well, just walk past the biscuits, Gareth, walk past the biscuits. And the limbic system sees the normal path, the normal path that this elephant normally takes, which is towards the biscuits. And it's the limbic system that just goes... <laughs> Biscuit. Biscuit. <laughs> uh, and and then the the rider will go, oh well, okay, it's only one, and it's you know it's it it'll, it'll be fine. We you know we don't have to have any biscuits tomorrow. We'll just the the rider justifies what the elephant's done. So part of this process then about being able to be a leader who actually motivates change, is about getting into people's into their soul, into their into their limbic system, the hippocampus, the things that programs what they do, and and looks at how easy it is just to carry on doing what they've always done how do we make it more difficult for people to do what they've always done let's make it more difficult for them to do what they've always done and now let's make it something that that becomes easier to do the new thing so that has to be part of our motivational outlook on it i'll go back to that model that we were talking about it's the it's the capability it's the opportunity and it's the motivation the capability part is about understanding the reasoning, knowing how to do it. Do they have the memory to do it? Do, do people have the cognitive ability to do it? And that's the, you know, do they need extra training and skills to actually be able to do these things? Do they need an increase in optimism that actually, yeah, well, we can do this as well, which then relates on to the motivation to believe that they can do it as well. And then the opportunity part is, do I, as a perhaps as a team captain, Maybe as the as the as the football captain, do I have an opportunity to display this behaviour? Do other people have an opportunity to see others just like them doing it as well? Are there role models prom promoting it? Is the environment easy enough that it's creating the opportunities for these things to happen as well? That's the second part of this. Is as you look through all of those things, as you look through people's capability. The opportunities got and the motivation effectively what you're doing is you're figuring out what are the barriers to change what are the barriers that stop people doing it and what are the things that are perhaps some of the things that are likely to be in place already that help this to happen so step one make sure you specifically identify the goal identify your stakeholders and identify the, all the behaviors that need to take place from all the people involved step two look at people's capability the opportunities I have and the motivation to actually do it that creates the behavior. And then step three is a process in terms of looking at it in terms of how how you can encourage the behavior, the new behaviors that you want. The Behavioral Insights team came up with a, a model called EAST. And the E stands for easy, the A stands for attractive, the S stands for social, the T stands for timely. Now, again, I'll go back to this analogy about you know, people's behavior with biscuits because they are, you know, it's one I think hopefully that, you know, people can, can relate to. Most of the time it's easy to get a biscuit. Most of the time it's quite attractive because a biscuit tastes really nice and, and it's and it's quick to eat. And, and it's often a social thing because often you'll have a biscuit with 
a cup of tea and often you'll have a cup of tea with other people as well and timely it's it's one of those things you go well it's time for a cup of tea isn't it oh if it's time for a cup of tea it's probably time for a biscuit so that east model easy attractive social timely think about that in terms of the changes you want to create is there anything making it less easy that deters people from doing the new thing so bureaucracy the things that actually just prevent people doing the things that you want them to do so for us it might be in, in the military it might be something simple about about using handheld devices handheld devices are you know things that people see in supermarkets you know checking barcodes and things well of course they're used for all sorts of different things within within all sorts of different organizations so for for checking supplies or whatever it might be you know, what stops people using them pro- properly well one of the things that stops them using properly is is the amount of bureaucracy it takes to sign one out and get one it's actually easier not to use it than it is to use it so you have to think about what barriers may be in place that's making it less easy is there unnecessary information that you can you can get rid of is there is a report function you can get rid of and can we provide the new behavior and make it look so much easier than the old one look at this this is easy it is easy to do in fact, it's easier than what we were doing before. So let's let's do this. And then the attractive part is, well, how can we tailor it to the people that we're trying to focus upon? Can we actually get people to think that this applies directly to them and it's for them? It's something that is attractive because it it's a, has an immediate benefit for them as well. And filtering information, how can we get them to to focus on the on the key parts the key parts that make it attractive the key consequences and benefits that make it attractive then there's a social element of it so how can we highlight that other people just like them around them are doing it how can we influence the target group how can we influence them in terms of what they do and what they say because rarely do people change on their own more often than not it's because there's a group aspect to it. So what are the social implications of doing it and not doing it? What are people actually talking about? So when they're standing around actually talking with each other and they're not on their phones, or maybe when they're sending messages to each other, sending a a WhatsApp or an Instagram or whatever it might be, when they're sending a message to somebody else, is is it going to be positive about the things that they're now doing? So there's that social element of it. And then the timely element of it is how can we influence when they receive information that promotes happening. So when we want them to do it, the ideal is is that we drop a bit of information in just before they make the decision about how they're going to do something. And that then influences their behavior. So we get all sorts of information coming into our radar that influences what we do. And so, for example, if there's a tube strike and you get that information the night before, influences your behavior about what you do the next morning and the next morning you're probably likely to do the next easiest thing but when do you when you get the information is the is the is the crucial bit because if you're just about to do something dropping in the information in a timely manner then that helps as well how can you influence when the information is given and all this then allows you to basically target the behavior that you want to change it allows you to think about the people who need to change bottom and top all the people in between it allows you to see the barriers to change and then allows you to come up with a solution that actually you can try out because you think it's easy attractive 
it's social and timely. And once you put all those things in place, that's about then actually coming up with a way of measuring to see how whether this is actually working or not. And that could be from reports from, from your customer base. It could be reports from, uh, from within the teams themselves. But in some way, you've got to keep a track on actually whether this is working or not. Now, I've spoken a long time about steps one, two, and three, and those those aren't the only steps you could use. You know, there are many. So I started off by saying to your initial answer, how difficult is it to change behavior? It's difficult, and it's something that is you're in it for the for the long game. You you're very rarely gonna click your fingers and find someone changing a behavior unless they find themselves in the back of a bus holding a mobile phone and thinking, I'm never gonna do that again. So it's a big ship to turn around. It's a it's a big effort to take, but you you can do it if you use the right tools and techniques. Gareth Bloomfield, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.